Welcome back to Money Wise Law. My name is Jay Fleischman. With me today is Gene Melchion. And today we're talking about what your financial life in a post-pandemic world looks like. If you can't pay your debts or you think that you might not be able to in the coming months, we've got some stuff for you. Stick around for Money Wise Law. For some people, the pandemic presented this enormous opportunity and resulted in this tremendous financial windfall. Americans accumulated an excess of $2 trillion in savings during the pandemic because, you know, there was nowhere else that they could spend their money. At the same time, credit card debt fell by $123 billion, with a B, billion dollars. As stimulus checks rolled in, and student loan payments were frozen and people went into forbearance on their mortgages. But as with anything else, it didn't really extend to everybody universally. And that's, I think, the thing that a lot of people overlook. Using data from the Census Bureau, the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities found that more than 28% of Americans continue to have trouble meeting their usual expenses, and around 9% can't afford enough food to feed themselves. So almost one in 10 people are food insecure. In the richest country in the world. Exactly. Blows my mind. The Household debt service payments as a percentage of disposable income is at the lowest that it's been at any time since the government started tracking this information. And they've been doing it for decades. 8.22%. This is what it takes to keep a household going. Is that the idea? It's household debt service. So it's mortgage payments, your mortgage payments, your car loan or lease, uh, timeshares, credit cards, personal loans, student loans, any debt that you need to pay every month to keep your head above water. So 8.22%, the lowest it's been in the decades since the government has been tracking the number. It's still nearly 10 cents of every dollar that the average American brings home. That was my first thought was that 10 cents of every, every dollar that you make is going right back out the door just to pay debt. That's a big number. And that's the lowest it is. Right. That's the best it's been is 8.22%. This doesn't seem like a thing to be proud of. Then we start talking about housing and the delinquency rate on single family residential mortgages overall is at 2.75%. And everybody's thrilled about that. But it's still 15% higher than it was immediately prior to the pandemic starting when it was 2.39%. And if you just look at FHA mortgages, 7.6 million of them out there. And about 14.7% of them were delinquent as of May 2021. And of those that are delinquent, over 10% of them were more than 90 days past due and in danger of actually going into default and foreclosure. That's so a huge warning flag. It is. The FHA mortgages tend to be the first time home buyers, which will more often than not have less money in the bank. Right. They're maybe beginners. younger. Yeah, they're they're beginners, they're newbies. 14.7%. That's a lot, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, it's it, huge. It, I, it sounds I'm like gonna, a lot to me. Well, let's see. That's gotta be, I'm just doing it off the top of my head. That's got to be somewhere around 
three, four hundred thousand. Right. And even for people who aren't homeowners or don't have mortgages, 14% of renters, a little over 5.8 million households are in arrears on their rent payments. It's about 20 billion dollars in past due residential rent. Number one, it shows that renters are going to have a really hard time once the eviction moratorium ends on a nationwide basis. Also, state by state, there are a variety of uh, there are a variety of tenant protections and foreclosure protections in place as well. Some beyond the July 31st, 2021 date. But that's also $20 billion worth of money that small landlords don't have. The vast majority of landlords are not these multi-billion dollar hedge funds. They're mom and pop and grandma and grandpa, and they haven't been getting their rent money. So when they're not getting their rent money- It's not like the rent money is is just free money either. That's money that's allocated towards paying other kinds of debt, including mortgages on those homes. Exactly. And food on their plate and and whatever rental roof or other home that they have um, where they're actually living. So the notion that everybody's doing well, it's a great headline, but it's definitely not accurate, certainly not across the board. And the financial benefits of the pandemic were not spread evenly, but surprise, surprise, because they're... Even the they're never stock so, market has never really so, realized that just in the last couple of days, even. And a lot of people blew through their 401ks when lockdown first hit. A lot of people lost their jobs. And there's some provision in the CARES Act that allowed them to do that without penalties, so long as they put the money back in with a certain amount of time. But the people who kept their job and were able to work from home and were able to sock away more money and got stimulus checks. Those people didn't have to dip into their 401s. So the the gains in the investment markets, they've gotten those enormous gains also. Even if the markets have dropped over the course of the past couple of days or you know there's there's always the up and down of the market, but overall it's been on a tear. Um because oh, the haves have have more and the have nots have less. So if you can't pay your debts, you're not alone. A lot of them aren't necessarily feeling the heat just yet because of the moratoriums and the delays in collection and things of that sort. Um, Absolutely. But it's, it's coming. It is. But if you're in a situation where you can't pay all of your bills or you think that you can see that happening in the very near upcoming future, you do have some ways to limit the damage, right? Yeah, you you, you, just... you need to to make that realization first, and now's probably it, it may even hopefully not be too late, but now is the time to take a look at where you stand and where you will be standing in a couple of months. Yeah, without the rose tinted glasses, you've got to do everything that you can to look at things as objectively as you possibly can. The way that I talk to my clients about it is I break it into self-help and get help. A good way of doing it. Yeah, that makes sense. There are some things you can do yourself and there are other things where you really need somebody to help you look at things maybe a little differently or to give you some knowledge you don't have. 
Exactly. Because sometimes you're a little bit too close to the problem or sometimes the solution is a little bit more specialized than you can effectively handle on your own. And it's not always the case. There's tons of stuff that you could do on your own. And the first thing that I tell people is prioritize your spending. Look at your income, allocate your first money for the for the absolute necessities, food, housing, transportation, if if there's childcare necessities, those are those are the absolute basics. Roof over your head, food on your plate, ability to get to and from work and take care of your yourself and your family. Once you've allocated the money to that, then start looking at everything else. Right. So survival credit mode card. first. Exactly. It's not going to be forever, but you just got to get past whatever's whatever's going on right now. You want to cut up your credit card so that you're not incurring additional debt because I think you and I have both seen situations where somebody was paying off their debt and using their credit cards and paying off the debt and you've got that revolving door, right? Or treadmill, depending on how you want to look at it, vertically or horizontally. <laughs> but it does go exactly. seem to make its way of going round and round and round and round. And you have to break that cycle as part of this this analysis. And if you're having trouble making your payments already, continuing to use any of your cards or incurring more debt is just going to make it worse. Yeah, you're digging a hole deeper. So then you start looking at your expenses. And this is where sometimes there are going to be hard choices. Nobody wants to give up anything, even if it's just for short amount of time. But if you only have so much money coming in, you really need to bring the numbers in line. So you want to look at your cell phone and you know, look at other providers, lower your plan level, your car insurance, streaming services, your cable or your satellite. Even if you've looked at all of those things, you can go and look at your food budget and say, well, you know, maybe I'm maybe I shouldn't have that T-bone steak every week. There are lots <laughs> of things you can do to trim not necessarily cut, but trim around the edges to make sure that you've got enough to to survive on. You know, I've never had a food budget and I do most of the food shopping in the house. I also do most of the cooking in the house. I approach it as a game. How little can I spend? How, How little, little can, can I spend? Yes. Mm -hmm. How close to zero can I get it without compromising quality, nutritional value, without compromising full bellies and sleeping well at night for my family. How close to zero can I get it? Instead of shopping at place A, can I shop at place B and have it be less expensive? Um, are there coupons available? Can I double my coupons? Can I use my shopper's club card and be able to accumulate enough points and you know use some of that uh, and turn it into gas savings? Do you set a menu in advance? I do. Yeah, I, do. I think that's a, 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 a way to avoid the impulse shopping when you're in, in a grocery store is if you go and start off with a goal in mind as to what your what items you're going to be uh, focusing on during the following week and you do a week at a time or two weeks at a time, if that's possible, uh, mm -hmm. and you it avoids the, oh, look at this, there's a box of Fruit Loops here. <laughs> <laughs> I like Fruit Loops, so let's let's grab a box of that at eighteen dollars a box or whatever it costs these days. Uh, yeah, I haven't exactly. had Fruit Loops in years, so I wouldn't know. <laughs> You're absolutely right. We started setting a menu 
not as a way of saving money. We started putting menu together because, like I said, I do most of the cooking. I work remotely. I've worked remotely for well over a decade. My wife works outside of the house. We just... I I don't have the time to sit down and menu plan every day. For a long time, we weren't menu planning. And sometimes we end up ordering in and we're going out and that was expensive. Beyond that, reviewing and prioritizing your expenses and bringing those, those other expenses down in line. There are a lot of people who would tell you, well, look into taking out a new loan to pay your other debts. You've got balance transfers and home equity loans and consolidation and there's these peer-to-peer loans like Lending Club and Prosper. No, 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 here's, here's I feel like I just threw you a softball there. Yeah, no, yeah, because (laughs) you're going to borrow more money to pay off old debt. First off, you're probably going to be increasing your interest rates. You're not going to be decreasing them. You're not going to be paying off the old debt for less than what you owe unless you're a really good negotiator. And then the real problem is the temptation is, well, now that credit card is at zero and I only have this other bill to pay. So I'm going to go out and charge more. And all you're doing is kicking the can down the road or digging the hole deeper, depending on which metaphor you want to use. Is it a metaphor? I guess it is. But still, the idea is that borrowing money to pay debt isn't solving the problem. It's not a good idea in my book never a good idea to borrow money to pay off debt unless you absolutely have a plan in mind and and something working already for you like you've made a deal with some creditor to pay something off at a fraction of what you owe but then the problem is you also might be creating a tax problem so there's so many pitfalls in this process and it's the one thing that most clients that i deal with think of first before What we talked about in terms of looking at where you are is like, well, let me just borrow the money to pay the other bill. And and you're really not accomplishing anything by that. Right. Now, you're going to come up with some some good reasons why that makes sense. And I'll I'll listen to them. But it's not my recommendation. Exactly. You brought up that you brought up the idea of taking out a loan to pay off an existing loan if you're able to negotiate a lower balance on the loan that you're paying off. But the only way that a creditor is going to accept less than the full balance due is if you're past due or in default on that debt. Well, it's common sense because if you're paying the bill now, how do I know you have a problem paying the bill? You've been paying the bill. You have a history of paying the bill. So pay the bill. Exactly. If your intent is to negotiate a lower balance and take out a loan to pay that balance, recognize that you're going to have to be past due or in default on that other debt that you're looking to negotiate down. And when that happens, your credit score takes a hit, which makes it less likely that you're going to be able to get a loan to pay off the settlement. So you're you're going to wind up putting yourself in a worse situation. Yeah. If you start off with this idea, well, I'm just going to borrow money. First off, you've created more debt before you've solved the problem. If you wait to borrow the money until after you've set the stage for negotiating with the creditors, 
you're not likely to get the money that way either. There, there's so many pitfalls here. I, I just right. I can't begin to ex- explore them all. You're much better off to contact the creditor beforehand, before falling into default, and seeing what kind of programs are available if you're really going to be in that position. I think you're right. My rule of thumb is this. Your your overall cost of borrowing has to be lower with the new debt. That's number one. No, we're not talking about the payment here. We're talking about the cost, we're, right? And and payment is, of course, part of that because yeah, but- it's the cost is the it's the interest rate. It's the fees. If I take out uh, $20,000 in a second mortgage that I'm going to pay out over 30 years, my payments are going to be lower than you know $20,000 worth of credit card debt. Sure, but my overall cost of borrowing is going to be potentially higher because I'm going to wind up paying it out over a longer period of time, right? Right. So you have 30 years worth of interest or 20 years worth of interest yeah. that you have to factor into all of this, plus closing costs, plus all the other yeah. things that go along with borrowing against your home. You know, so if you can avoid borrowing against your house, don't do it. The second part of that rule is the cost of non-payment must be no higher or no greater with the new loan than it would be with the old loan. If I have a credit card debt and I don't pay it, I go into collections, my credit score is shot, maybe they sue me, maybe there's a wage garnishment after a judgment. I That's my cost of non-payment. Right. If I take out a home equity loan or a second mortgage to pay my debt, to pay my $20,000 in credit card debt, and I don't pay it. I get my house. Right. The cost yeah, of non-payment. Be, yeah. Right. You you may be placing <laughs> things at greater risk by doing these kinds of loans. Yep. I think we're on the same page. Maybe not taking out a loan to pay off your existing loans. But you did bring something up about talking to your creditors before things get bad. So talk to me about that. Yeah. So uh, most of the mortgages are backed by federal funds. There are tons of programs there that are allowing people to modify their mortgages or even if you've missed a payment and you're you're constantly I talked to somebody yesterday who was constantly paying their payment one month late you talk to your mortgage lender and you say look I've got this problem what can we do about this one month that I've been late or my two months that I've been late and try to deal with it before it gets too so big that you can't handle it Credit cards are kind of the same way. I mean, they have more to lose than maybe a mortgage company does, but they're so they also have various programs and and, and they may say to you, look, you know, we'll we'll let you skip a month or 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 something along those lines. The IRS is the kindler, gentler IRS. If you owe the IRS money, it's a, it seems to be a forever kind of thing, but. If you talk to them, they'll put you into a payment plan that they believe, and you should realize that you can pay this over some period of time, uh, even if you can't get back uh, on track with them right away. Um, There there are all kinds of things you can do. There's child support modifications. If you've lost your job, your income is reduced or changed, you can go to them, to your court, and, and say, look, you know, I need to have this recalculated. And they'll do it. It costs yeah, you something absolutely. to do it, but it's sure. it, it, nothing is free. The life is not free. But those creditors, those those are the big three: your house, your taxes, and and maybe child support. Those are are big expenses, and there are things you can 
be proactive about, especially after you've looked at your budget and understood what your income looks like? It's a good idea to pick up the phone and ask the question and be honest, brutally honest about your situation before things get too bad. It stands to reason that you've got a better shot of getting some assistance if it's a month or two months past due, as opposed to the day before the foreclosure sale is going to take place. Be proactive and be as transparent and as open about your difficulties and what your situation is as possible. This is not a time or a place to hide behind your pride. You're not going to get any help from anybody. If uh, Oh, if, if you don't, don't ask for them. help, you ain't going to get any. So yeah. this is... This is your first call for help. And and the thing is, you don't necessarily need an, an expert to do it either. If you call and you're honest with them, they're going to work with you to, to get it. And the benefit to them is, guess what? They get their money as opposed to not getting their money, which is really all they want. Exactly. So those are the, the self-help options. And then there's right. the get help options. And you've got three major sort of get help options. You've got your credit counseling, which is when you go to a company and uh, it's normally a not-for-profit and they put together a debt management plan for your debts that they don't reduce the debt, but they'll often reduce either the interest rates or they'll change the minimum payment due. You'll make a payment to the credit counselor. They'll distribute it among your creditors. That's all credit counseling is. Just bear in mind that credit counseling isn't perfect. First of all, debt management plans usually, not always, but usually only include credit cards and other unsecured loans. And they don't typically cover debts like student loans and taxes and child support and mortgages and car loans. So if your debt isn't credit cards and just general unsecured, normal run-of-the-mill consumer debt, then credit counseling may not end out being the right decision for you. You want to make sure that you're dealing with an organization that is reputable and most of the reputable ones, all of the reputable ones that I know are nonprofits. Take your time and vet these companies because there's a lot of fly-by-night operations. If you're looking for credit counseling, you can look at the National Foundation for Credit Counseling, Financial Counseling Association of America. You talk to a couple of people, get a good feel for them, and really dig in deep to make sure that you know who it is that you're going to be putting your financial life in their hands. You want to have that personal relationship of trust and understanding of what it is they're doing and what they can do for you. You want to look for a track record. You want to look for an understanding of how long they've been around and what they can and can't do. There's one, well, there are two other get help solutions. And, and one of them is debt settlement. Debt, debt settlement's hard to do. Like we, we talked about earlier, you have to be in default. You have to be you're going to be dealing probably with a collector who gets paid based on what you pay them. So they want to get the most out of you as they can. Um, you're, mm -hmm. you're probably going, they're probably going to agree to something uh, that is not exactly what you would have hoped. Uh, you're going to end yep. up paying more. Um, and it's tricky too, because there are pitfalls. You want to make sure that what you're settling for is payment in full, paid satisfied, paid settled, something like that, and reported to the credit bureaus as having a zero balance after you're done. You don't want to exactly. find out that the the 
people you've been working with and you've settled with has now taken the balance and sold it off to another collection agency who is going to come after you for the rest. Um, Those are all tricks and problems. And then there's the issue of coming up with maybe the lump sum payment that they're going to want to settle the debt for less. Because a lot of them won't want you to get into a payment plan because payment plans are easily broken. If you could do a payment plan, you'd be in with credit counseling, not with the debt settlement. And And you don't want to pay anybody to do it for you either. Companies that do debt settlement are limited in how they can charge. They're governed by uh, the Credit Repair Organizations Act uh, or CROA, C-R-O-A, which is a federal law that governs how companies and individuals that settle debts or or assist in debt resolution can charge their clients. So there, there are limitations. And it's a great law. There's a reason why it, why it exists. And the reason is primarily that there are so many debt settlement companies out there that when I say fly by night, <laughs> that's not an understatement. They'll show up one day and disappear the next. They advertise their services by postcards and text messages and Facebook posts and letters that look a whole lot more official than they are. And they'll send you things by by overnight mail just to catch your attention. It's amazing. And, you know, if you've got five or six or seven debts, even if you can settle most of them, you may not be able to settle all of them. And remember, your creditors can still file lawsuits against you and continue collection activities against you, even while settlement negotiations are going on. So it is it is a minefield. Right. That things don't necessarily come to a stop just because you're trying to make the effort. And and again, it's a tricky thing to do and get it done right. You may have every hope that somehow I'm going to settle this $30,000 worth of credit card debts, uh, and I say debts, for 25 cents on the dollar. And when that really isn't kind of how it works. Um, and maybe you do settle four or five of the 10 that you have. Well, that's a help but it's not a solution. Exactly. And then I I don't want to say last but not least, because it implies that it's always a last choice when it isn't. um, And it's certainly not the least attractive of choices in all situations. Then you've got bankruptcy, a legal framework to turn everything that's voluntary that we've talked about before up until now, all the do it yourself, all the have somebody do it for you things and have those efforts overseen by a court and a judge and a trustee to make sure that everything is fair or as close to fair as the law can get, equitable or as close to equitable as the law can get, and give you some level of clarity and consistency and and take all of the guesswork out of it. The idea is that everybody gets the same set of rules to play by, both on the creditor side and on the debtor side. So if you owe money, your creditors also have play by those rules, too. And it it works out if it's a situation, if it's a circumstance that you're in where it fits, then it's a perfectly good tool to use. But it is only a tool and it's not the right tool for the job every time. And by no means should you should you jump into it without thought, nor should you avoid it at all costs. It's one of many tools to choose from. And it's something that should be looked at in the same way that you would look at debt settlement or credit counseling or taking out a loan or doing anything else. Right. I actually think 
this is this is where I think a lot of people make the mistake of doing it in order. Uh, I'm going to do credit counseling first, then I'm going to settle my debts. And if all those things don't work, then I'll do bankruptcy. Well, that may not be the right way to do it. It's almost better to look at all three options at the same time, talk to all the the various providers in each of those areas, and then decide which one is the best one for you. And everybody's situation is different. So you can't pigeonhole each of the solutions in quite that cleanly. There are things that bankruptcy can do for you that none of the others can. Exactly. And there are things that debt settlement might be able to do for you, depending upon your situation, that nobody else can. That's right. Yeah. You've got to go into this. You've got to be in this situation and think in terms of resolution, not in terms of bankruptcy, debt settlement, credit counseling, wait for them to sue you, whatever it's going to be. You want to look at it as, what do I need to do to resolve my current problem? What are the pros and cons? What does each one entail? Which one's going to be better for me on balance? That's the only way that you get to make a good choice. As opposed what are we talking to- about? We're talking about getting educated as to what's going on. You really need to start learning about all of these options and how they affect your situation because nobody can tell you exactly what's best for you except you. What's interesting to me is that nobody should tell you what to do. When you go in and you talk to somebody, their job should be review your situation. Here's what I can do. Here's the pros and the cons. Now you get to choose. You should always be the one to get to choose and you have to decide how you want to live your life. And nobody else can tell you how to do that because it's your life. So those are the things that you should be doing if you can't pay your bills or you think that that may be a possibility in the near future. You're not alone. There are some people that are doing a whole lot better than they ever were. But there's a whole lot more people who are doing a whole lot worse than they were before the pandemic first hit. And this has been MoneyWise Law. My name is Jay Fleischman. You can find me at MoneyWiseLaw.com. I am an attorney practicing in California, as well as in New York, and I handle student loan matters nationwide. I am Gene Melchione. I'm also an attorney, but I'm licensed to practice only in Connecticut. Um, and you can find me online at ctbankruptcy.com. I also work with people in student loan debt. And just because the domain name is bankruptcy in it doesn't mean that's the only thing I do. If you have any questions, you can feel free to email us at podcast at moneywiselaw.com. We'll see you back here next time.